Welcome back, Pete. Uh, welcome back, Kyle. Thank you. Yes. Welcome back to Corpcast. I know we've been uh, missing for a little while. We've unfortunately let work and life get in the way of podcasting, which is really our fault. And Unacceptable, so, I Yes, say. we apologize for that. This is our first podcast of 2016. We wanted to take this opportunity to give a little recap about what happened when we were gone while we were out to lunch. Kyle, can you tell us what we're going to talk about today? Sure. In our 2015 year in review, we have a couple different categories we're going to address. One is the court's uh, recent opinions regarding disclosure-only settlements. We'll also have a section talking about financial advisors behaving badly, as well as a couple comments about some of the conflicted transaction opinions that the Chancery Court and now um, while we were gone, the Supreme Court has an opportunity to comment on. And we will finish up with a couple other important cases um, that we found from this year. Okay, that sounds great. And because we try to keep this uh, podcast to a reasonable length, we're not going to be able to cover everything in this, and we're just going to try to hit the highlights. So, you know, this is not intended to be comprehensive, but we're hitting on some of the really big, the big topics that you need to know since we last spoke. Absolutely. So the first topic um, on disclosure-only settlements, Pete, we know that in the latter half of 2015, there were a number of opinions coming out of the Court of Chancery indicating that change was coming. What's the current status as it stands today? This is actually going to let us bleed into 2016 a little bit. But in the latter half of January, uh, Chancellor Bouchard issued his decision in the In Re Trulia Inc. stockholder litigation, in which he rejected... Uh, and refused to approve a proposed disclosure-only settlement. There are a number of different uh, interesting aspects of this, but it is really the culmination of, like you said, Kyle, the sea change that I think we all saw coming in the latter half of 2015, where, um, for instance, in Riverbed, Vice Chancellor Glasscock indicated that he he actually approved the deal, but but indicated that it was probably not going to be the last one, and Everybody should be aware going forward, and the only reason he may have approved it is because it was agreed to during a time frame before all of these warnings came out. And, you know, in this, the court really expressed its preference to have a disclosure claim uh, presented and litigated, in, you know, so that there is a real uh, opportunity for the court to judge the materiality of it in, the, in an adversarial context rather than in a settlement context where nobody is really incentivized to disagree with each other. And and so one thing that the court said you could do if, you know, we're not going to get disclosure-only settlements anymore um, is to actually do what we, we used to call a mootness settlement, which was the company would issue disclosures addressing the, the claims made in a complaint, which would therefore moot the claims. And, you know, in that way... Uh, what can happen is the company uh, can at least put an end to the litigation. Uh, you can agree privately with a, with the plaintiff on a fee for that. And that fee is actually privately negotiated and doesn't need court approval. You do, however, need disclosure of the fee and the fact that it's being dismissed on mootness grounds. And that needs to go out to the stockholders. But you know, one of the court's points was, from a practical standpoint, most people don't jump in afterwards and, and try to litigate that case on their own. They just say, all right, well, you know, 
I got more disclosure and that thing's going away. So it's one way to get around it. But the the other thing is the court said it it would be un, unlikely to approve disclosure only settlements unless a, the settlement addresses a quote plainly material misrepresentation or omission. Uh, and at the same time, the release that is given uh, must be narrowly circumscribed. And if you're going to release claims other than the disclosure claims, you need to make sure that you've done an adequate investigation and that you really can show the court, look, we looked into the substantive claims of breach of fiduciary duty, you know, for flaw in the process or, you know, the, a, uh, the price is too low or whatever it is, and really show the court that, you know, those claims really don't have merit or don't merit us pursuing them any further. So it seems the court has a strong preference for the adversarial process and even considered the option of appointing amicus curiae to help the court with the claims if at some point if that could be a possibility in the future. That's right. That's right. You know, the court did indicate that it might do that in the future. Just for instance, I know Vice Chancellor Glasscock uh, recently awarded $10,000 in fees to an objector to a class action settlement that was disclosure only on the grounds that the the objector, and this was uh, Professor Griffith, I believe, who was the objector, created value for the benefit of the stockholders because he helped the court better understand and really provided that kind of adversarial look at the at the disclosures and whether they were material or worth the, the, the release that was being given. So that is certainly something that could happen in the future. Uh, I think right now everybody is... If this was a sea change, they're trying to get their sea legs under them <laughs> to figure out exactly how they're going to go forward after this. We'll be interested to see what happens, and we'll bring any further updates to listeners on this issue specifically. Moving on to financial advisors behaving badly, the uh, reality show topic. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, here we have two cases that we want to discuss, um, one out of the Court of Chancery, one in the Supreme Court. Um and the first would be the TIBCO uh, stockholder litigation involving Goldman Sachs. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Right. In this case, Goldman Sachs was the financial advisor to the seller. When they were negotiating the deal, they were doing it on uh, sort of this is the total amount that we're going to pay. And as they got closer to the end, they, they had a capitalization table that Goldman provided, but it erroneously double-counted some of the shares that were outstanding. And so, you know, depending on whether you looked at it on a per share value or a total value, if you did it on the per share value, the error by Goldman, actual deal value was $100 million less than what the board anticipated. And what happened in that case is that the board decided to go through with the transaction Ultimately, there's no fiduciary duty claim against the directors because the court held that the claims against them were exculpated by the 102b7 provision in the company's charter. But that didn't prevent the stockholders from asserting an aiding and abetting claim against Goldman. Uh, and the court held that it was reasonably conceivable that Goldman knowingly participated in a breach because it created an information vacuum for the board because they weren't getting the right information and this was really critical information that the board needed and I think there's also some allegations that Goldman was or might have been aware of the error perhaps a little bit before 
<laughs> they yeah, did. I think that the contingency fee for Goldman was something on the order of 99% was based on the deal itself. So I think the court there is saying this doesn't mean that they did behave badly, but it's fair to say there was some incentive for them to withhold this information if they did, in fact, know. Right. From a pleading standpoint, it certainly makes it reasonably conceivable that Goldman withheld information from the board in the hope that the deal would get done rather than raise a $100 million fight that might cause it to not get done, and so therefore Goldman gets its fee. Again, we're not saying that this is the case. This is just you know what the court is telling us um, about the, the pleading, because this is a pleading stage case, really. And so the next case is um, related to the Royal Metro decision. It's RBC Capital Markets um, at the Supreme Court, and this is a decision by Valahura. Interesting here, um, we have directors who were found to have breached their fiduciary duty in, in contrast to TIBCO, and as well as a separate claim against the financial advisor for essentially committing fraud on the board. Right. And this decision, the RBC Capital Markets versus Jervis, or otherwise known as Rural Metro, is certainly causing a lot of consternation amongst uh, deal lawyers uh, out there because it raises a lot of unknowns uh, that can um, really throw wrenches into deals and, and create additional risk that people can't even contract around. I know that people are, uh, there are a lot of people that are critical of the ultimate result here. Um, which was a finding of, what was that, $83 million that, that RBC had to pay. But the Supreme Court affirmed the Court of Chancery's decision. Uh, it, it said that it was correct uh, that um, RBC could be liable under these circumstances. The big thing here, I think, to take away is that you know, RBC, in its... Uh, engagement letter, I believe, said that they wanted to be able to provide um, financing to potential buyers, right? And so that's not in and of itself improper or impermissible, but what that does is for the board, it should raise the board's level of scrutiny of the financial advisor's actions because the financial advisor then in theory, could steer the deal towards one potential buyer that it is providing financing to over another one that it's not providing financing to because it gets it gets double paid on the one it provides financing to. So, and in this case, the the court found that uh, the board was not adequately informed ultimately uh, of the conflicts that RBC had, and I think that the immediate manner in which this can be addressed is to have an ongoing um, dialogue with the financial advisor um, throughout the process, particularly if they say in the engagement letter, we want to be able to provide financing and you agree to that, right? But it's to have a ongoing dialogue throughout the whole process about what the financial advisor doing is doing and whether the financial advisor is doing anything that, you know, cause the court concern in RBC. That is the immediate way I think that you can address it. It, you know, In theory, could you try to address all of that in, a, in an engagement letter? Sure, but from a practical standpoint, let's say you do, let's say it, it's, um, 
you know, RBC, you know, they advise or go to pitch meetings uh, to probably thousands of companies a year. And if you know, some guy in RBC in one office uh, goes out to lunch with somebody who is in a potential buyer of the company <laughs> uh, to pitch them on something completely different, you know, to even collect the information that that occurred and then process it and then disclose it is, first of all, extraordinarily difficult for some of these very large investment banks. And then secondly, you know, there's all kinds of uh, confidentiality restrictions that RBC might have with these people, other people that they're talking to. And to try to navigate that through the process of an engagement letter is 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 probably um, really almost impossible to do it up front. And so that's why continued vigilance and diligence by the board to monitor what the what the investment banker is doing throughout the process is really the, the, the best way to address that. And I think importantly in this case, the Supreme Court didn't invalidate the idea that a board can rely on export experts. Um, and and their their opinions. It's just that the board, and correct me if I'm wrong, has just to be actively involved and reasonably under, aware of what's happening. Right. I mean, this goes back to the you know the 141e issue. You know, the board's entitled statutorily to rely on experts, um, but there has to be a reasonable basis for the board to conclude that the person is reliable. And so, I think what what we're seeing here is the courts saying, look. You need to make sure throughout this process, because it is so important, that the person is reliable. You know, because if the person is trying to sell you out and do its own thing, they're probably you know uh, not reliable in the way that that the statute contemplates. Excellent. So moving on to conflicted transaction news, we did touch on um, some cases involving conflicted transactions in a previous podcast. So we want to talk first about how those cases fared on appeal to the Supreme Court. Well, the cases we had talked about before, there was um, Crimson Exploration, KKR Financial, and Sanchez. And if you recall, the question was whether it was a controlling stockholder transaction. In each, each of those cases, it was a stockholder that owned less than 50% of the outstanding shares. So you're getting into, into this sort of metaphysical what is control concept. In each of those cases, the courts focused on the, quote, control of the board in the specific process as opposed to sort of general notions of control. In Crimson, the court said, you know, I'm reluctant to find that, that the Oak Tree Capital doesn't control the company here, but it doesn't really matter at the end of the day because it was a third-party transaction. That one sort of sidestepped the issue, but in, in um, KKR and Sanchez, the court said, no, we're focusing on control of the board, no control here. The counterpoint was Zhang Pin. In that case, the court focused on control of the corporation. It didn't cite KKR or Crimson. And Sanchez was actually released the day before Zhang Pin was, and so it didn't cite that as well. So that's sort of where we were. Uh, Sanchez and KKR uh, actually went up on appeal. First of all, the Supreme Court and KKR affirmed the finding that, that it wasn't a control transaction. You know, in that case, KKR held 1% uh, stock, and 
but provided basically all the services that the company had through a, through a, an affiliate. The KKR sur- uh, survived uh, on that one, um, and so the the court held that um, <clears throat> you know there was there wasn't really the course of power um, because of a stockholder uh, the stockholder interest. Or in other words, that the the contractual obligations didn't equate to some kind of like you said phantom control that's that was right. outside the holding. That's right. You know, yeah. Importantly, in that case, the the entire board, I believe, or a, certainly a majority, was independent in that in that case. And I believe it was approved by a vote of the disinterested stockholders as well. That's that's right. So I mean, you got a lot of different avenues here. In Sanchez, Sanchez did not fare as well, although it didn't address the control point in the Supreme Court opinion. But we should talk about it anyway, and, um, and we can do that briefly. You know, in that case, there, uh, the challenge transaction was uh, approved by an audit committee, um, and uh, basically, you know, they focused all on one guy <laughs> in the opinion uh, because of the way the board was structured, and that was because um, uh, if you had the one guy, then then there were there were not a majority of disinterested directors for demand purposes because importantly Sanchez was a 23.1 demand issue as opposed to some of these others which were which were 12b6 motions so the court really focused on the um, demand issue and in that case uh, the court of chancery had said uh, that this person was disinterested and independent or they'd the pleadings did not raise a reasonable doubt as to the interest or you know, independence of, of, of this director. Um, on appeal, the Supreme Court disagreed, and you know the Supreme Court really said in that case, "Look, you got a guy here who uh, is a longtime friend of the you know interested stockholder in the transaction. You know, we've known each other for forty years, and then he's also." Um, uh, this director is also a director uh, and employee of another company that the interested stockholder uh, is a director of as well. And so while standing alone, either one of those things may not necessarily have, have raised a reasonable doubt as to that director, you know, this is not a mechanical process when you're, when you're looking at these uh, interest and, and allegations of interest, and, and you know, you really got to look at them together. And if you look at them together, does it raise a reasonable doubt that a guy who's known somebody for forty-five years and you know works at his is a director of his employer, <laughs> and the employer even says that that person raises you know can wield some influence at the company? Is there reasonable doubt that that person could decide something against? The interested stockholder, you know, that's essentially where the Supreme Court came out on that. You got to look at them both together. Mm-hmm. So, so that's where you know Sanchez came out, and it's back down in the Court of Chancery, and it's uh, going to be litigated. So, and so one case that we didn't talk about was Cornerstone, um, and there was a Supreme Court opinion from from Chief Justice Strine in May. Um, speaking about the standard um, that minority stockholders have to plead in order to survive motions to dismiss. 
in um, in Cornerstone, this was a case where it was clear the entire fairness doctrine um, was going to apply, but there were disinterested and independent directors in the case who I think everybody fairly admitted really hadn't done anything and whatever had happened wasn't their fault. And at the court level, the plaintiffs had argued, look, you know, if you look at Emerald Partners uh, and some of the cases uh, relying on Emerald, you can't apply a 102B7 exculpatory provision at the pleading stage. You have to do it only after you've determined what the standard of review is and then on a director-by-director basis to see you know, whether they've actually satisfied the, the, the standards for exculpation. And so we don't, have to pr- we don't have to even plead an independent claim against those folks, and they're still in the case, in their parties. And on appeal, the Supreme Court said, no, we don't agree with that. And they said, minority stockholders must plead non-exculpated claims against the independent and disinterested directors in order to survive a motion to dismiss, regardless of the standard of review. Uh, and, and really, that was, a, a, I think, a decision driven by expediency. Why are you going to keep somebody in as a party? If you cannot say what they have done wrong and what you know practical or policy benefit is there to keeping folks in cases as, as a defendant. Some of the comeback I know was, well, it's easier to get discovery from them if they're parties. I can just serve them. I don't have to get a subpoena and whatnot. And the, you know, part of the counter argument, at least in my mind, uh, was, well, look, if... if they're directors of a company and, and they're incorporated in Delaware, then you... Well, but I th- yes, that's certainly one thing. But, you know, but if, if they are directors of this company and they fight discovery on a case involving their fellow directors and are recalcitrant and don't cooperate, that is only going to you know, redound poorly on their fellow directors who are actually defendants. And it's more likely than not, I would guess, I would venture to guess, to, uh, that the court would find that very suspicious, that the director fought <laughs> to provide testimony in the case. That's a fair point. Yeah, so. But anyway, that's the status now, and when now we see a lot of these, we talk about cases, a lot of cornerstone motions. I've got a disinterested independent guy, and there's a 103B7. I want my cornerstone motion. <laughs> So finally, in our conflicted transaction category, we're going to talk about one of the most publicized cases of 2015, and that's the Dole Food stockholder litigation. And here we have um, the case of a controlling stockholder and one of his associates, uh, both of whom serve on the board and as officers of the company, um, actually, it appears, manipulating the sale process. Right, and this is very interesting because the, the the court very early in the opinion makes it clear that he thought the special committee in the case actually did a great job and did the best it could under the circumstances. <laughs> um, because this was a, the controlling stockholder. It was a take-private transaction. The controlling stockholder wanted to buy out the minority, uh, there's a special committee that's formed. You know, they're really trying to to do all the right things. And, you know, facially it may have looked like that, but the court found 
here that um, the controlling stockholder and the associate effectively manipulated the entire process so that even if the committee, the special committee, made a good decision based on what it knew, because the associate uh, had manipulated the process so much, the board's decision couldn't be respected ultimately in terms of either a burden shift or anything anything else because there were proven allegations of manufactured revenue projections that were given to the committee and its bankers while the associate then met with his own bankers um, or the controlling stockholders' bankers and gave them a separate set of projections. Um, and so it was really, you know... A lot of the things that if you wanted to put onto a list of things you should not do <laughs> in a sale process if you're affiliated with the controlling stockholder, there were a lot of things on there that the court found as a matter of fact in that case. Now, the interesting thing is, you know, the court said even though if the price that was ultimately paid was, was in a range of reasonableness, the court can still award a what he called a fairer price to prevent the defendants from profiting from their own from their breach. You know, uh, this case ended up settling, so we're not going to get a review of that fairer price language. Um, it is interesting; I've not seen it before articulated as a as a uh, measure of damages. Um, but you know, uh, that's out there, so it just people should just be aware of that. We shall see. Yes. So next, um, we want to move on to talk about one case that came out of the uh, Delaware Superior Court out of the Complex Commercial Litigation Division, or some uh, referred to it Delaware's other business court. Um, and here we have a, a case involving Twitter and a venture capital firm. Yes. Why don't you tell us about that, Kyle? Because I've spoken too much. <laughs> Okay, fair enough. The Twitter case um, involved a, an agreement between Twitter um, and a group of venture capital firms that related to Twitter's IPO and the promise of these firms to bring in money for the IPO. So It was all pre-IPO stuff. Pre-IPO But they're going to use it as sort of the last thing to get to the IPO and go forward after that. Correct. So this firm um, did their work. They brought in potential investors. Um, but in the end, one of these potential investors and Twitter ended up bypassing the venture capital firms and making their own deal directly with each other. And so that led to a claim um, against Twitter uh, for a breach of the contract governing this pre-IPO arrangement between Twitter and the venture capital firm. Um, so the interesting thing about this case um, it, was squarely a contract case, and on a motion to dismiss, Twitter argued that it actually had never assented to the agreement because it had never signed the agreement. So the court found that at, it was reasonably conceivable that um, the plaintiff could prove its breach of contract claim, and we will see where that litigation takes us next. Wow. So is the lesson there, don't even send contracts? <laughs> I think uh, the lesson there is that uh, Twitter went public and you should have uh, invested. Well, yeah, so then I would not be talking to you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so let's finish up with a couple other important cases that we've identified from 2015. Um, the first would be 
Valco Energy shareholders litigation where the court actually invalidated a company's charters and bylaws. Yes, this may win the award for the transcript opinion that caused the most problems for people in 2015. Uh, It was actually in December 2015, and the holding of the court was that a provision in the company's charter and bylaws that purported to limit the ability of the stockholders to remove a directors from a non-classified board without cause so that they could only remove them for cause was invalid under Delaware law. Uh, the court really relied on 141K in the plain language saying that, look, there's nothing in here that, that indicates that that is appropriate. Because 141K, you know, arguably makes plain that it that directors can be removed with or without cause. And so you can't change that statutory norm. Uh, And here there was no classified board, there were no cumulative rights, and those are really the only two exceptions that would require removal for cause. And so the court said, look, it's just plainly invalid under Delaware law. And uh, the interesting thing here is that as part of the briefing in the case, apparently one party had had provided the court with a list of 175 companies that have similar provisions in their charter or bylaws. Uh, and uh, those companies have not all been sued, but there is a, you know, they're trickling out over over time. And I've, there have probably been at least four or five that I know of that I've seen in Delaware, and maybe there's some elsewhere as well. So this may reveal uh, my lack of experience compared to you, Pete, but why did this case even... Why did it come to this? Had this not been described before by the courts? Yeah, they really hadn't, uh, you know, I will say this. There are always attempts by boards to limit stockholders' abilities to change the composition of the board. I don't want to say always. That's probably a little (laughs) disingenuous. But that's the thing that commonly happens. Um, You know, and there are different ways that you can do it. Obviously, you know, the, the classic way is a poison pill, right? You can, because if you change the composition of the board, the pill gets triggered and, you know, all hell breaks loose. Uh, but there are other more subtle ways. And, and you know, the, the last, I think, real sort of exploration of some of these ones, you know, in the bylaw context, well, certainly there's the advance notice bylaw, which says if you're going to put up a alternate slate at the annual meeting for election, you have to uh, provide us notice sufficiently far in advance, and they give you some time frame in order to do it. And if you don't meet that advance notice bylaw, then you're not allowed to present your your alternative slate of directors at the annual meeting. We saw this come up last summer, actually, in the Hill International Opportunity Partners case, where in that case, the advance notice bylaw was triggered by the company's uh, public announcement of the date of the meeting. Uh, and... The company tried to say, well, we told the people at the end of the prior annual meeting it would probably be on this date, you know, in the future. And according to the company in that case, that triggered, you know, the applicable portions of the advance notice bylaw. But in uh, the court said, no, that wasn't definitive enough. Uh, the the provisions of the bylaw were triggered when you actually announced a firm date 
because the, the announcement was less than 70 days or whatever the time period was before the annual meeting that triggered the alternative set of advance notice which which uh, the plaintiff had complied with so that's another you know a way you can do it um, there's also attempting to manipulate the uh, or limit the ability to act by written consent we went through some of that I think in the uh, 80s and the courts very plainly stated, you can't eliminate the ability to act by written consent except in the charter. You can, however, put some administrative provisions in there in the bylaws to to uh, affect how the company does things. But you know, again, that's another thing. And 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 you know, Valco is is, is another thing. It just hadn't really come up because, frankly, in public companies, it's not often that you get. Uh, Stockholders attempting to remove directors for any reason. It's a very rare thing in a public company. So we'll probably be seeing, like you said, more cases along those lines or at least some changes happening behind the scenes now that that case is, right. is out there. Right. All right. And so the last case that we want to talk about today is Sega Technologies. Um, and again, here, this is uh, mostly concerning expectation damages and the Supreme Court opinion um, about a chancery case below. The core of this case is a, a what the court found uh, below and what the Supreme Court affirmed uh, was a bad faith breach of an agreement to negotiate a license contract in good faith. And basically the facts in their most simple terms, if I can do that, was that these companies were discussing a merger. They said, look, if, if uh, the merger gets abandoned, you you agree to negotiate a license for your valuable uh, drug that we were interested in anyway. And, you know, what happened was after they agreed to the merger agreement, the seller got its drug approved and did all these wonderful things. They abandoned the merger as they were permitted to do under the merger agreement. And then uh, when confronted with the obligation to negotiate a license, proposed terms that were materially different than what was in the their original letter of intent or letter agreement, and then they never reached agreement ultimately. This case has gone up to the Supreme Court before, <laughs> and you know some of that, some of the prior history was relevant to the court's decision in this case. But for you know from a non-procedural standpoint, the substantive rule here was that the court and the Supreme Court affirmed that. Uh, the plaintiff in the case was entitled to expectation damages, meaning what he, uh, the, the company expected to get had they negotiated the agreement properly and resulted in a, a final agreement. Um, and so uh, the, the difference was if you don't get expectation damages, you get reliance damages, which, which are you know usually significantly less. And now this case was a pretty big deal because that put up the red flags and the radar for a lot of people who negotiate deals and, and probably have entered into this, this similar sort of deal or a similar sort of agreement uh, to say, look, if we don't do X, then we'll negotiate Y. The important thing here, I think, is that uh, you know the Supreme Court found that the plaintiff was obligated to prove the fact of damages with a reasonable certainty. But he was not required to prove the amount of damages with the same level of certainty, and that was because if if you require the amount of damages to be proven with reasonable certainty, the breaching party, who is the wrongdoer in the case, can take advantage of the uncertainty created by 
the breach itself. The court went through a very long explanation of why that's a good thing as a policy reason. I think people can certainly disagree about that. We're not going to take a stand on that here, but that's the way the Delaware Supreme Court uh, looked at it. And so that's what the law is now. Well, excellent. Thank you so much. That is your 2015 year in review, courtesy of Corpcast. By no means extensive, but hopefully informative. Well, it was certainly long enough. It was. I, I, the garage band here says it's, I don't even know. That's not time. It's like some sort of... It says you've been going for years. It says I've been going for, for way too long. Well, I hope everyone enjoys it. Yes. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We're going to try to get on a consistent schedule, provided that, you know, Kyle does all the work, because right? it can't be me. I do what I can. I know you do. But if you have questions, want to suggest a topic, or want to give us feedback, you can reach us at corpcast at morrisjames.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at decorpcast where we will put links to podcasts and information relevant to Delaware law. You can get more information on our firm's blog, DelawareBusinessLitigation.com, or be the first to know about content by subscribing to Corpcast through iTunes or any podcasting app. Thanks, and we hope to see you again soon.